Um, so if you've been with us, we are in a season um, of the church called Lent. Um, and it's marked by fasting and humility and repentance before the Lord. So if you're visiting today, you're like, wow, that sounds horrible. You know, uh, I thought Christians were supposed to be joyful. Well, absolutely. Yeah. But ours, Christian joy, is not a naive joy that whitewashes the world. Christians are supposed to be joyful, but it's not a joy that has to ignore the brokenness of the world to survive, like earthly joy. It is a joy in the midst of suffering. In fact, Christian joy is born in suffering. Not ours, but the suffering of God himself, the suffering servant who suffered for the sins of the world. What Lent reminds us of is sin brought suffering. And it's a season of honesty about our own sin and how our sin individually and collectively required the suffering of Jesus if we were to be put right with God. And what we've said is if there's any church season in the church calendar that we would go without, it would be Lent, right? I'll take the free gift of Christ in Advent, I'll take the forgiveness of sins in Easter, the indwelling, the empowering of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost. All that sounds great, right? But do we really have to get old-timey and talk about sin and repentance? Isn't that just old methods of fire and brimstone, guilt religion? But what we said also is because the church in some places in order to be trendy and relevant, has opted not to talk about these things. It's contributed to creating a church atmosphere in which if you really want to deal with your stuff, you gotta go to AA or CR, not to church. So you go to ch in our culture, you go to church to show everyone else that you're awesome, right? I've got my life together, I even go to church, right? And in the one place that we should be able to acknowledge our own weakness and needs. The one place that we should be able to say, I am broken and I need strength and help to be a good husband, to be a good worker, right? The one place where we should be able to acknowledge that kind of weakness is the one place we feel like the odd man out and we can't. We don't feel like able to raise our hands and acknowledge need in church because by and large in today's climate, the church has done a lousy job at creating a place that you can repent. You can come and celebrate and rejoice and be happy, yeah, but, but repentance, eh, we have a room for that, right? <laughs> right? When we drift from the biblical ideas of, so I'm, I'm rationaling Lent for us here, when we drift from the biblical ideas of sin and repentance, it creates a bunch of confusion within Christians as to what the problem with the world is. And this is what we've said. That's what we've said already about Lent. See, they start, then Christians start, if the problem with the world isn't sin, which is what the Bible will maintain, then we start thinking, well, the problem with the world is politics. I mean, that's an easy one. That's low-hanging fruit, right? right? The problem with the world's education or rock music, if you grew up in church back in the day, right? Or, or capitalism, that's the problem in the world, right? That's easy stuff. Entertainment, we love, Christians love to, you know, right? Instead of realizing that those are visible avenues in which the problem manifests itself. See, one of the reasons the Bible makes so much sense to me is it acknowledges this fundamental reality that we all know in our hearts, even if we're not willing to exist. And things, even if we're not willing to admit it, things are not as it ought to be in the world. 
The Bible acknowledges that. The Bible doesn't have to hide that, like some Christians like to try to hide that something's wrong. So the Bible acknowledges fundamentally that something is profoundly wrong with the world. But I was going to say, that's right. That's correct. All creation, fractured, broken. Romans 8 is going to say, groaning. All creation, groaning under the curse of sin. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what's gone wrong. And it explains why the world is in the state it's in. See, it's actually evil that causes a larger problem for secular people to explain. If we're so awesome, and if we're so progressed and enlightened, how do you explain the Holocaust? What's that? I thought people are like awesome. The evil causes a larger problem. I think, at least that's what C.S. Lewis says, and I said his name. There it is, okay. (laughs) If we forget this fundamental reality, as Christians, that what the Bible teaches is that sin is what has gone wrong with it, then, and some of of you are going to relate to this, the cross becomes an enigma. Why? Why Why the blood? I mean, that's weird. Why do you have to die? Like, we're fine. Everyone's fine. Why did Jesus have to die? I mean, can we just acknowledge some of us are a little confused by that? Like, why do you have to die? See, what we think we need is reform. And the Bible says you need redemption, not just reform, right? And when we are underwhelmed by the reality of our own sin, past, present, and future, we are then underwhelmed by the power of the cross, and by the grace of God, past, present, and future. So in the end, we believe that this path, a path of acknowledging our weakness and repentance and humility, is the only path to true lasting joy because it deals with the problem. You can't get to the joy before you deal with the problem. The Bible's gonna call that repentance. So if you've lent, therefore, is not where we mope around for a month, and then rejoice when Easter comes. It's where we acknowledge that our world is broken, that we have participated in that brokenness, right? And the path to true joy must first deal with that brokenness. If not, it is a superficial joy, right? And of course, the great claim of Jesus is that he came to do exactly that, to deal with the brokenness and reverse the effects of the curse of sin. So all that to say, I'm cool with Lent, all right? That's all I was trying to say right there. I'm cool with Lent, all right? Hope you're cool with Lent, all right? It's a good landmark to point us to the story of God. Remember, acknowledge, my sin is great. I can't ignore it, but his saving power is greater, okay? So if you've been with us, and I'm, yeah, we've had some pretty heavy-hitting content, all right? It's been challenging, all right? Maybe, it's been challenging to me. Maybe not to you. Maybe you're just keeping the seat warm thinking about baseball. But it's been very challenging to me over the past three, four weeks, right? And we get another chipper feel-good sermon today, which is apparently my specialty. Um, Today, we're going to meditate on a three-letter word that I think uh, there's plenty of confusion over, and that's sin. We're going to meditate on sin today. What is it? Why is it? What does it do? How does it do it? And I'm probably going to ask more questions than I'm going to give answers uh, today. Uh, But let's just sit with a few scriptures and see what we can learn. So arguably the best place to start this conversation is at the beginning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to Genesis 3. I'm going to read this. should be on the screen. 
Now, <clears throat> the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst, the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Four, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and there was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Okay, just pause for a second. A snake is talking to your girl, bro. And you're just sitting there? Like, what are you doing? Just staring at his belly button when a snake is talking to your girl. Okay, maybe, maybe snakes talk. I don't know. Maybe animals talking. I don't know. But you're just standing there while it's going down. Okay, seven. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Naked, naked. How do you say that word? It depends on where you're from. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord of God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? God knows what's happened. He's giving them an opportunity to come out. The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, gave me the fruit of the tree. I mean, could you be more evasive, bro? The woman whom you gave. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant us the peace of the Holy Spirit now. God, I ask that our hearts would be softened to the life-giving nourishment of your word. God, right now I ask that you would calm the storms in our minds and hearts that so readily distract us from what you are doing and what you long to do. Speak peace to us now, Holy Spirit. Thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So there, there's so much here um, to be said, but let's just point out a few things. Number one, sin might better be defined as disobedience. That might be a better word for it, right? God said, don't do this, and Adam and Eve did it. Sin at its root is simply disobeying God's declared will. It's saying to God, uh, in no uncertain terms, I know better than you when it comes to this issue, right? Number two, we could analyze how the serpent distorted truths enough just to cause them 
to doubt God's intentions. Did you notice that? That's what he did. He put a suspicion in their mind that God is holding out on you, right? He just distorted it just enough. False half-truths, sort of truths, just blurred with deception enough for them to buy it. And that's what he did, right? But the most interesting thing to me is that sin didn't happen on its own. Right? There was someone, something, some being aiding the process, greasing the tracks, as it were. And the way he did that was by what? Deception, deceiving. It's an important note. It was a lie that introduced a suspicion towards God's goodness that led them down the trail, right? Now, does this dismiss responsibility for their disobedience? No but it does make it a bit more complex, doesn't it? Right? A snake, a talking snake, where did it come from? We have no clue at this point in the story. We're just told it was a crafty snake speaking lies about the goodness of God or the lack of the goodness of God, right? We have no clue where he's come from. Later in the story, Genesis 4, 7, sin is personified in the Bible. And we're told that sin is crouching at the door and it desires to what? Rule you. That's what we're told. But the, the Lord tells Cain, you must rule over it. So it's interesting how he talks about sin as something, not just an act or a thing, but a power sort of that has a will that's has intentions, that's longing to subdue you, right? It's not till much later in the story do we get that being, that thing, whatever it is, described in elusive language, but, but we do get it described later in Isaiah 14, 12 and Ezekiel 28, 12, seem to point to the idea that this being, this serpent, was once an angel of light, called the morning star, which is translated in Latin to Lucifero, from what we get the term Lucifer. It means day star, bright one. So the biblical paradigm is that not only did creation rebel against creator, but that at some point there was a heavenly rebellion as well. And that there are beings, spiritual beings, that rebelled against God as well, right? That they felt they deserved the glory and the worship and the praise, not just God. And in Jesus' ministry, you see him dealing with these spirits who not only know who Jesus is when no one else did, but were terrified of him. Right? Read Matthew 8. So we're getting in some deep waters today, huh? Ain't glad yet? The point is, and this is kind of, here, here's our template for today. Sin at its root is disobedience, triggered by deceit that aims to convince you that you know more than God and in the end means to rule you. Okay? That's, that's the template. So, Let's chat about that sentence, okay? 
Sin is disobedience triggered by deceit. Aims to convince you you know more than God. In the end means to rule you. Okay? So, no nice little Christian would ever say this. But when we sin, in essence, we are saying this to the God of creation. I know more than you. And I'm going to try to prove this to you, right? This is why many theologians... um, contend that the real sin, the real root of sin is not just desire, it's not just lust or greed or whatever, it's pride, right? So, so maybe you're not a sinner, but if you think of any area where you knowingly are doing something God has called wrong, in, you are only able to do that because in your heart of hearts, you really believe that you are smarter than God in this area. So example, when it comes to sexuality, God seems a little uptight, doesn't he, Right? I mean, which he's not. If you read Song of Solomon, bro's not, all right? But you're single, and therefore, if you have sex outside of marriage, the Bible's gonna frown on that, and it's freaking 2021, right? I mean, how bad can it be, right? Sex, I, mean, what's wor- I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? What is, why does he say that anyway, right? And this is how we talk about it. I mean, forget all the empirical studies that show that like, you know, those who wait to have sex or marriage have likely longer, longer likelihood of more satisfying marriage, no STDs, right? I mean, but they don't know anything, neither does God, and I want this, right? You know what you just said? You said you're smarter than God. That's what you said. That's what sin is. You know, God, I mean, maybe you're good with like making like mountains. That's what you can do. You're good at that, like an architect. But I think I know more than you when it comes to human sexuality, right? I'm a human, right? I think I know more than you when it comes to relationships because she's a jerk and she deserves my hate, my unforgiveness, my bitterness. If you thought a little bit more like me, God, you would understand why she deserves bitterness and slander and wrath, right? Take porn, for example. God says, don't look lustfully after a woman. But you're like, who would know? Nobody, right? Does it, it doesn't harm anyone. I mean, again, forget all the empirical studies that show that porn destroys men, destroys marriages, destroys families. And by the way, God, who do you think you are to tell me what I do with my free time? No one tells me what to do. I'm freaking Ron Swanson, Right? I got, I got to quit with like the office and the Parkinson and Rex jokes because like it alienates some and other people. Like you got it and you thought it was great, but other people. What about um, unforgiveness? The New Testament is piercingly clear on God's command to forgive. Shockingly clear. Matthew 18, check it out, right? So how, how is unforgiveness rooted in pride, right? Well, Some people, you say, don't deserve to be forgiven. And when we refuse to forgive, we are not trusting God to be just. We are saying, if you know, knew God, what I know about this person, right? I know a little bit more than you here, and they deserve a solid punch in the nose. But I'm a Christian, so I'll just despise them in my heart and slander them to all my Christian friends, right? What are you doing? You're saying, okay, okay, it's bad. I get that, right? I know God says I should forgive. I know that, right? But, you know, even, again, secular studies will show the corrosive nature of bitterness on your physical health, right? Right? But you need to take matters into your own hand, right? And you need to, you need to let them know what's going on and what's happening in that moment, right? Is you're fashioning a God, not the true God, you're fashioning a God, that's after your own image 
instead of reflecting his. You're saying to God, you should think more like me on this issue <laughs> because I see this with a clarity that you lack, Lord. <laughs> that funny? See the Lord, see the funny bit about that? Anyway, see, at its root, sin says, I am a better God than you. Is this, am I connecting the dots or does this make no sense? Does this make sense? At its root, sin is saying to the Lord, I'm, I'm a better God than you. To the guy who created all creation, the Alpha and Omega, the one who laid the foundations of the earth, spoke it into existence, who opens his hands and feeds every living thing, before whom angels hide their face. Heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool. Sacrifice himself to redeem and forgive, restore all creation. Yeah, what does he know? Isn't it interesting that the tree was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's think about this for a second, right? In other words, when they ate it, and when we sin, we set ourselves up as our own authorities as to what is good and what is bad. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We tracking, right? We begin making the calls ourselves as to what is good and what is bad. Before they did this, before Adam and Eve did this, there was just the goodness of God leading, guiding, providing in, in, a, in an uninterrupted intimacy and delight. When they believed the lie about God's intention for them, they started thinking he is holding out on us and then introduced into their minds, we should decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. That's why it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And y'all, I mean, this is the air we breathe, huh? Is it not? Find your truth, right? We look for spiritual truth today like we look for restaurants, right? You find one that your appetite likes, and then if your appetite changes, you discard it, and you find another truth that fits you, right? You see, the serpent was speaking half-truths. In a way, they did become like God. In fact, in Genesis 3.22, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. That word knowing can also be instructing in good and evil, right? It's a very actually complicated word, yada, Hebrew word. But how would they, how, how they become like God, right? Well, in that now they would now decide for themselves what is good and what is evil, or in a more familiar language, they have created their own truth, right? And today, this is the kind of, this is the kind of thinking that we just applaud, right? We just, we just go it all right. You, you decide what's right for you and don't let anyone tell you different. See, this is exactly what the tree represents, guys. This is exactly what the tree represents. The idea that you are intelligent enough to establish for yourself what is right and what is wrong. It is the air we breathe today, right? Find your truth, right? Live your truth. Establish your truth. And here we are so, so many years later looking back and seeing the prophetic visionary wisdom of God and how he knows our nature, right? In this old archaic book, Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil. Man, I mean, I'm just, I'm blown away by how relevant it is. So the reality is, for all of our 
progress and sophistication and technology and advancements, the evidence seems to point to the fact that we still don't know what makes for our lasting joy and peace as a human race. Or have we ended all wars and violence and hate and racism through politics? Anyone want to argue the last year was a shining example of human progress in political methodology, right? But this is the thing about obedience and sin, right? A lot of those examples of sin I gave can be backed by modern science, couldn't they? A lot of, like, right? Porn, um, uh, lust, uh, sex outside of marriage, bitterness. You can find tons of academic articles that reinforce those as corrosive to human nature and human flourishing. You can. I mean, you can look it up, right? However, I would argue if, this is very important for us to understand about sin. If we demand that we fully understand all of the reasons God says, don't do this, before we will obey, then you are still maintaining control in some ways. When we say, I will obey if it makes sense to me and I can find someone else who will vouch that I should do that, then I'll obey, right? Listen to me. Can I, I, wanna, I wanna say something to you right now with my words. There will be some things that look like the path of life to you from all angles, that in the end, God knows leads to death. And there is a level of trust that you have to have if you are going to be a Christian, which believes God knows best how the human machine runs. And even though I see a path as totally justifiable, right? Even though all my friends and culture go down this path seems totally fine, I'm gonna choose to trust God in this area. And let me tell you something, you will often be the odd man out. Do you have that kind of strength as a Christian? I mean, the New Testament talks about what we can expect when we follow Jesus. Not only that, Matthew 23, 37, Jesus pulls up to the city of God, Jerusalem, pulls up to the city of his people, And Jesus says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you like children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, Jesus is acknowledging that even among the people who claim God, they don't often trust him. This is massive. It's all throughout scriptures. In fact, Jesus is even pointing out even further, the people that did trust him, they killed. Have you read the Bible? This is crazy. The Bible's crazy. Jesus is like, people of God, my chosen people, I've chosen you out of all the nations. You kill everyone I send to you. It's profound, man. Right? So the other thing we know about sin from this passage and others is that it is saturated in deception. Sin is saturated in deception, y'all. It's like smoke and mirrors, man. It's like bait, bait, hook, and switch stuff, 
right? It's like an optical illusion. You ever been in one of those weird houses where you're like walking, you think you're walking one way, but you're walking another way because the optical, that's what sin is like. It's an optical illusion. Makes you think you're on one path, but you're really on another, right? The deception of sin starts with a whisper of a thought, right? And then you wake up one day finding yourself so committed to that lie that you then begin employing methods of self-deception to maintain the lie, right? And there, here we go. This is happy stuff. And you're glad you came to church today. There, there are two, this is great. Stay with me. I know everyone's bored. There are two specific sins that Jesus pointed out in his ministry. He said, hey, 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 hey. This is what he said, hey. <laughs> he said, be on your guard. Take care. Two specific sins that he said, beware. Now, I don't want you to, not out loud, but just in your mind, what do you think those two sins are? What are the two sins that Jesus said, oh, oh these two, beware. Take care, be on your guard. Now, that, you'll find be on your guard, take care in the New Testament more, but there are only two concerning sin that Jesus said. Take care, be on your guard, look out. I see y'all, I see y'all Googling on your phones, right? Guess what they are? The two things he said, hypocrisy and greed. Those are the two sins he said, these are particularly deceptive. You gotta watch out. Look out, be on your guard. Luke 12, 15, he said to them, take care. Be on your guard against all forms of greed. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Matthew 16, 6 in one place says, beware of the leaving of the Pharisees. In Luke 12, we know that he says that's hypocrisy. Beware, beware, look out, take. These are particularly deceptive, right? Tim Keller, pastor in New York, Pastor, in New York City, New York City, the financial capital of the world, right, said this. In all his years of pastoring, he has never had someone come up to him and say, I think I may be guilty of greed. He points out, no one seems to think they are in danger of greed. No one seems to think they're susceptible to being greedy. And yet, of all the things Jesus said, beware, look out, he said, be on your guard against greed. In fact, Jesus points to things that most commonly choke out the fruitfulness of God's word in your life. He said, those two things choke out the fruit, God, the cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches. Those are gonna choke out the fruitfulness of the word of God. You know, isn't it interesting that Jesus connects the deceptive nature of sin with greed? All right, no one thinks, no one thinks I'm ruining my life by getting more money. No one thinks that, right? It's like, our, it's like what our whole existence is aimed for. More money, man. I, I, I can get into that, bro. Let's all make more money. Look, I'll, I'll make more money and then I'll get you selling more money on me and then you're already, and then we'll get the thing going, right? And, every, and when we just get, I mean, our, does your blood not start pumping when someone says passive income? No, no one else? You're like greedy pastor up here with the mic. Man, I can get into that. Let's all get rich. <laughs> Let's get drunk and our money and our wealth. No one else feels that enticing their hearts. Oh, gosh. Who am I talking to? We live in America or not, right? See, if I start selling this stuff, I get Bobby under me, and then you get Derek under you, and oh, look, man, this, right? 
<laughs> Jesus said, he said, wealth, y'all, he said, it is deceptive. He said, he said, bro, it's lying to you. It's lying to you. It's a path that you think security and health and vibrancy is therein. And he said, no, no, no. It's lying. Hmm? He said, sin is like, or a sin like greed and hypocrisy blinds you to the nature of the thing you are committed to. We effectively become blinded by desire, right? Not only is sin deceptive, it also is alluring. It draws in. It makes promises. It entices. It looks good. It looks right. It looks justifiable from all the angles, and no one else seems worried about it. In fact, our culture glorifies it. Our culture champions it, whether it's total sexual autonomy or wealth or fame, right? The old timers in the room probably remember the three G's. Anyone remember the three G's, right? Girls, gold, and glory, right? And the thing about girls, gold, and glory is all of those have phenomenal allure, like almost irresistible, right? All of those things, neutral things, good things, right? Sex, wealth, influence made by God can be used for the glory of God, for his glory, our joy, right? Until they grow out of healthy boundaries like we've talked about, right? There is a high to sin, y'all. There's a high to it. It's what the Proverbs are getting at when it says stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. It feels great. There's an extra element of naughty pleasure in it, isn't there? It allures. In fact, scripture is gonna tell us more about sin. Not only is it rooted in pride, deceptive and alluring, Jesus said whoever sins is a slave to sin. So here we got pridefully disobedient, enticingly deceptive, and addictive. May the odds ever be in your favor. Right. <laughs> right. Feel a little outgunned. <laughs> Sin, therefore, could be likened to a drug, a narcotic. In John 8, Jesus says to the Jews, If you abide in my words, then you're my disciple, and the truth will set you free. You know what Christians say to talk like that? We're not slaves to anybody. And that's exactly what they said. They said, we're nobody's slaves. How can we be set free? In John 8, 34, he says, I'm telling you the truth. Anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And then he calls him a son of the devil. So big day for brownie points for Jesus. But <laughs> what does he mean by slave to sin? See, we, we really don't have a relatable experience in our day to slavery like they did in their day. It was different in their day, right? It was not race-based. It was economic-based. So if you fell in debt to someone, you couldn't pay it back, they would say, that's fine. I'll just take you and your family and you'll work for me and I'll own you until you pay off your debt and then you'll be free. They had a ready imagination, a ready cultural imagination, a slot for that, uh, that word, slave, slave to sin, right? We don't have that in our experience. We understand conceptually what it is, but we don't have that in our experience. What we do have in our experience and can relate more to, to being owned is addiction, Right? We therefore might label or compare sin to an addiction, and it's rightly so. It's biblical. You can do that, like an opioid or alcohol or gambling or porn or any physically, chemically addictive substance. It promises you something, doesn't it? Am I the only one 
that has felt that it was promising me something? Hmm? And you seem to be in the driver's seat, and then all of a sudden you're not. Think of, think of the youth who grew up in the deep south where alcohol was the no, 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 no. No, 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 no. All right? Triple no. No, no, no. Never alcohol, right? And as soon as he gets out of the house, he thinks, I'm a man. I want to express my adult autonomy. And I want to show my freedom by having a drink. And another. And another. And another. And another. And two months later, he has now, in fact, become enslaved to the very thing he thought was a means of expressing his freedom. That's how sin works. And that's what sin is like. It is not, it is not an easily controllable, harmless, domesticated habit that you think it is. And the lines become increasingly hazy as to who is in control the more you do it. Which points back to the biblical reality that there is something, someone, some being behind it which aims to rule you. So I know we're dealing with a lot of issues today, a lot of topics, but I just need to give a little aside because if you bring up Satan, you kind of have to deal with it just a little bit. So if you find it difficult in our modern age to believe in a devil with his hoven hoofs and pitchfork and red things, right? Well, I'm inclined to agree with you about the appearance, right? The pitchfork and the hoofs and all that kind of stuff really is more of historical artistic license than biblical evidence, right? But if in our modern age you struggle to believe in a spiritual power of darkness, well then, you then have to be willing to say, am I I good? Are you with us? Okay. If you struggle with an idea of a spiritual power of darkness, you then have to be willing to say that the Holocaust in World War II, the Hutu and the Tutsi genocide of the 90s, and all other grotesque evils in history was simply good intentions gone wrong. You have to be willing to say that those abhorring dehumanizing evils done in history were all contrived and executed by humans unaided, unaided by any spiritual dark influences and simply are good intentions gone wrong. You have no other options, right? And if you've done any studying of those atrocities, you realize something much deeper, much darker is taking place than good intentions gone wrong, right? Christians can look at that and say, rightly, that's from the pit of hell and that's where it belongs. But the point is sin is not simply an empty act that may have some eternal consequences, but who can know? No, it allures, it deceives, it entices, and ultimately aims to control those who surrender to it. And here's my last thought. Sorry, we're going long today. If, a couple thoughts. If sin is deceptive, if sin is deceptive, if it's always making some claim, promising some pleasure or delight that in reality it cannot fulfill in any lasting way, then we need to start asking ourselves some questions. An author I read a lot says, nothing, if you are a guest with us today, I quote C.S. Lewis every week and they make fun of me for it, so. (laughs) Says, nothing can deceive unless it bears a plausible resemblance to reality. 
Nothing can deceive unless it bears a plausible resemblance to reality. In other words, the reason Eve was so easily tricked is because the lie so closely resembled the truth. And the lies we actually believe always blur the lines of true and false ideas, right? So that we can't tell which one is true and which one is false. For an exa- like money is a good example of this. Money is a wonderful thing. It's not evil. Yes, you can do wonderful things with money. Yes, and then it goes into... I'll be happier with more money. And then it goes into, and this, this is tricky, stay with me. You'll be safer and more secure and more happy with more money. And now we have to tease out where's the lie and where's the truth as a Christian? What is the place of money that God has for us? What is the place of wealth that is right and good and where it goes wrong and bad? Those are tricky lines. The Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth his income. Also, this is vanity. (laughs) Love that. Proverbs 11.4, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Money make you safe? Does money make you safe? You answered, that's cool, all right, yeah. I mean, not according to the Bible, all right? See the man, Proverbs, Psalms 52, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Guys, do you read the Bible? Do you read this thing? Like you seriously sit with that sentence for a while? See, in order to be deceptive, it has to be promising something And that promise has to be so close to true that we believe it. And we would do well to examine all of those besetting sins that we struggle with and feel we may never have victory over and begin asking the question, what is this thing promising to me that I am continually drawn towards it? Safety, security, comfort, power, they're all promising something. And number two, has, it re- has that sin, that thing, really ever in any lasting way came through for you? Or does it lead you right up to the point and then vanish, leaving you feeling emptier than before? It's really amazing that no matter how hard, how much we may try some sin to achieve the promise it claims, and it doesn't follow through, we just tend to keep trying, right? It's like turning left didn't work last time. I'm gonna turn left harder, you know, right? That didn't work last time. I'm just gonna go further this time, right? We'll just keep pushing it back, right? But scripture tells us the deceitfulness of sin hardens you, wrapping it up. Heart, heart, it calluses you, numbs you. It not only numbs your heart, but it numbs your mind. And in the end, you're shoveling dirt in your mouth, thinking more of this will quench my thirst. That is what sin does to you. Do you see it? Jeremiah 2 says this, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Sin is shoveling sand in your mouth, thinking just a little more of it will quench my thirst. And when you find yourself unable, no matter how hard you try to stop doing the thing you know is wrong, doesn't it stand to reason the possibility that you are no longer in control? 
right? That you've given something control over you that now you feel powerless to free yourself of. And this is exactly when Jesus enters the picture. First John 3, 8 says, the reason the son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus said that he makes you free, really free, truly free, like true freedom, true liberty, free indeed was the word he used, right? See, the claim of the kingdom of God The claim of Jesus is that he came to end the power that darkness had gained through deceptive, alluring pride. The claim of Jesus and the claim of his followers after him is that he was stronger than all the spiritual darkness and would one day crush the serpent's head. You see, go back to Genesis and immediately after the fall, Jesus says, there will come an offspring. And he says to the serpent, you will strike his heel, but he will strike your head. And that's what Jesus did. Numbers 21, last thing, I promise, here we go. Numbers 21, the people of God are having another encounter with venomous serpents and they're dying. And God tells Moses, make a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And anyone who's bitten, they can look at the pole, at the snake, and they will be saved. And then Jesus came along years, years later and said, hey, you know that weird story in Numbers? That was pointing to me. He said, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And all through Jesus's ministry, he is confronting powers of darkness and liberating those under it. And he does the same thing today. Let's stand and pray.